like it's important to consider like the practical element it's got to be portable and it's got to be easy to eat um, because it's it's got to be it's got to be tasty and it's got to be portable. It it always depends on the, what's the purpose of that training session as to what sort of foods I'd advise for that. So people are like oh like what do I eat? It's like well how hard are you going? How far are you going? Hello and welcome to the Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Steph Gaskell. And I'm Alan McCubbin. We are both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. We're also both researchers in sports nutrition at Monash University, and we really love translating the often complex science of sports nutrition into simple and practical strategies. Each week, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists, and triathletes ask. So this may be the stuff that you talk about um, in your training session or it might be in your post-run recovery between your um, your peers. So what we aim to do is break it down into um, easier to, to understand, um, I guess, answers. Uh, and we have usually a part A and a part B. So we invite a guest expert for the part A, that might be a researcher or a practitioner, and then the part B will usually be an athlete or potentially a coach. So, Alan, how are you going? Oh, all right, thanks, Steph. Uh, getting close to Christmas now, warming up here, which has been really nice. Trying to get on the, the trainer a bit and do a bit more riding, which has been good as well. So, yeah, just trying to pull all of those things together. So, um, yeah, it's been been good, been, yep. uh, been busy. How about you? Staying out of trouble? Staying out of trouble, yep. Trying as best as possible. Went down Surf Coast um, Century this weekend. Yep. Um, so yeah, so that was super fun being able to see some of the runners out there and see one of our, um, uh, guest athletes on here when we're talking about starting your first ultra, uh, Kelly Emerson, and she ended up winning the, the 50 kilometers, which was really cool to, cool to see. Yeah, not yeah. So, um, she did, she did really well. Uh, and yeah, just popped down there to do some research, um, for Monash and uh, really just enjoy running down there and a bit of the beach life. Mm. Not, yeah. a, not a bad place to do research. No, but I did see, you know, they were paying me out. I was telling, like, everyone kind of knows that I'm quite scared of sharks mm -hmm. um, and, like, they always try and encourage me to go in the water and I'm like, no, nah, not going in the water. And they're like, come on, what about just, like, I'm like the most I'll go potentially knee deep and then I'm like, even then they can still get you. And then, anyway, um, Pascal, um, doing her PhD, she said to me, she comes from Perth, and she's like, Steph, like, there's like, no, there's hardly anything that's happened in Melbourne. Like, there hasn't been anything for like 30 years. She's like, Perth and South Australia is where it's at. Um, you don't have to worry about, you know, going to Melbourne. And anyway, then this morning, she sends me a freaking like <laughs> caption in the news <laughs> Where's the shark located? Down where we've been. Mm, yep. Oh, crazy. Anyway, so not going in the water. 
<laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> That's my weekend. <laughs> yep. Fair enough. <laughs> um, anyway, let's move on to uh, the episode that we have got today, Alan. Yes. So episode today, or well, you were just saying before, there's an A episode and a B episode. There isn't for this one, um, no. like, like last <laughs> week. So it's episode 27. Uh, and that's because it's not really a, a scientific question. It is very much a practical question. So mm. uh, we can pretty much cover that off in one episode. So the question is, I'm over gels and bars. What else is there? And we're joined by Dr. Gemma Sampson, who's an Australian sports dietitian, but uh, she was joining us from Girona over in Spain. Yeah, yeah, awesome. And we've got um, two more episodes this year going right up to Christmas. Uh, and then we'll, we'll be taking a break for the next uh, few weeks. Yep. Back bigger and better next year. Mm. Let's get into some social media shout-outs, Steph. Uh, we had a few people with some comments coming through on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. So um, we had the uh, Gutless Runner. Um, can't wait for, for this particular one. Um coming up and then we had Michael Dresner uh oh yeah looking forward to this one we had um Scooter who's looking forward to this one and um used to be very much into his bike riding and still is so he loves Stroop waffles saying they're Mm -hmm. cheap and and chewy and then um three other social media we had Brenda Hutchinson who said she's really enjoying the podcasts um, and then Ben um, Dufus, who we've had um, on the uh, show before about um, sweat testing, and he's finding it really useful as a, a coach to use with his athletes to help with further educating. Um, and then on the inside um, running, um, Ruben um, heard us on there, and um, and he really enjoyed that um, episode and the tips for, I guess, preparing for Melbourne Marathon. Yeah. Awesome. So, yes, for those who are not aware, we were on the Inside Running podcast last week. I think that one came out actually the day before our last episode, um, answering some listed questions on there with Julian Spence, who's been on this podcast before. And so, yeah, really great to catch up with him and, um, yeah, get on their podcast. And a big shout-out to them uh, because they've been real great supporters of us since we started as well just over a year ago. Uh, and also shout out to, to Brenda, if she's listening, Brenda Hutchinson. Um, she, I first met Brenda oh, probably almost a decade ago, I reckon. She's done a huge amount of work with um, supporting people to raise money through the Cantu charity um, by participating in either marathon or um, triathlon events. So big shout out, Brenda. I hope all is well and, and going well with, with Cantu. Also, just a reminder that you can listen to us on any of the main podcast platforms. Um, If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, uh, you can also leave a rating or review there. We really appreciate those. And Steph, we just saw this week, we've actually cracked the top three on the nutrition charts for Apple Podcasts in Australia. That's pretty exciting. You know how excited I was when you told me. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we thought top 10 last week was a big deal. Yeah. And then we hit top three, which is very hard to believe. But anyway, mm. so a massive thank you to everyone out there who's listening on, on Apple Podcasts. So, yeah. But, you know, obviously any other podcast platform you choose is, is fine as well. Mm. So just a reminder, if you want to get in contact, if you've got a question that you'd like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. 
uh, and you can get in touch with us that way and, and let us know. Um, and then the final thing I'd say is we have, um, by the time this comes out, you'll probably have seen it, hopefully, some quick little questions. We're just looking for some feedback around the podcast, um, bit of planning and preparation for 2022. So uh, if you see it pop up in an Instagram story or a Twitter poll or on Facebook, um, really appreciate you just quickly tapping on that and, and giving us your thoughts. Um, won't take long at all, just a couple of seconds, just to get your basic reactions to a couple of questions. Um, and that'll help us enormously in um, you know delivering content that, that people are enjoying and finding useful. So today's episode is episode 27, Alan. Yep, I'm over gels and bars. What else is there? And our guest is Dr. Gemma Sampson. So as I said earlier, Gemma is an Australian sports dietitian, but she's actually lived outside of Australia for the last 10 years or so, firstly in the UK and now in Girona in Spain. Um, and during that time, she's done quite a few things. Uh, she's just finished off a professional doctorate um, at Liverpool John Moores University. So we've had a few people from, from um, Liverpool John Moores had Sam Impey, who did his PhD there. We've had Jose Areta, who teaches there. Um, so, yeah, so she did that looking at, at carbohydrate uh, in endurance athletes. Um, but she does a lot of work, particularly in cycling and triathlon, a little bit with running as well, but mainly cycling and triathlon. She's done, I think we talked about it in this interview recently, um, she's got a real passion for, for cooking and, and um and experimenting around with different recipes and food and things, which is why we asked her to, to come and talk about this particular topic because she's often experimenting with different sort of DIY sort of snacks to take with her when she's riding herself. Um, but she actually did a, um, an altitude camp with the Team Bike Exchange guys um, earlier this year as well and actually did all the catering for, for them too. Um, so, yeah, she's, she's really into that side of things. Um, she's got a a website which has a whole bunch of recipes and just got a whole bunch of other ideas of other places that you can go which we'll we'll talk about during this episode um yeah she spent a bit of time working with the uh what was then um team dimension data in the, the world tour pro cycling um now they're uh what is it quebec and next hash always forget with the cycling teams they change their names every year or two but yeah she did a bit of work with them a couple of years ago as well awesome uh, looking forward to this one, and I know listeners are as well, and it's a common question um, that we often get. So, um, yeah, we thought it would be really handy to to cover this one off. So um, let's get stuck into it. Yep, let's do it. Gemma Sampson, welcome to The Long Munch. How are things going there? It's, you're over in Girona in Spain. It's 7.30 in the morning. Are you awake yet? Uh, the caffeine is just starting to kick in, I think. So, yeah, I was literally the only person on the street when I, when I was walking into the office. So, yeah, it's a bit quiet today. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And you said it's a holiday over there as well? Yeah, I can't remember what holiday for, but yes, it's a holiday today. So that means it's going to be even more quiet than normal, at least in the morning. The afternoon will get really busy, but yeah, the morning is usually empty streets. All right. Well, normally when we promote these podcasts on social media um, and we put in you know, who our guest's going to be, we put like a little nationality flag next to their name. Um, but it's a bit trickier with you. I mean, you've obviously got the Australian accent, uh, which is good. Yeah. You've maintained that despite being overseas for quite a while. But you've lived all over the world throughout your life. Uh, you had you, yeah. know, you had your um, your website was originally called Dietitian Without Borders for a long time. So how do you go about sort of describing your nationality to people and, and where you consider home? 
<laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Um, so yeah, I definitely identify as being Australian and I, I'm, I'm amazed that I still have my accent considering how long I've been. I think I've been out of the country half of my life now. Um, so I grew up in Zambia. I spent all my teenage years in Zambia. My parents were working over there when I was a kid. So I actually did certainly with the, with the whole like uh, online uh, correspondence school. Like I did that back in like I don't know, 98 to early 2000s, but it was all books. <laughs> so we didn't really have internet and email back then. Mm. It was all done like the old school way with books that would get sent back home. And um, yeah, so I've actually lived in four different four different countries and three different continents. So between Australia, Zambia, the UK, and now Spain, where I'm, I am, I've actually realised that this has been my fourth. This weekend was my fourth year being or having first since I first visited Girona. Mm. Yeah, awesome. And I mean, Girona itself is somewhat of a home base for, uh, particularly for professional cyclists and, and triathletes as well. Um, uh, particularly, I guess, from some of the English speaking countries, they tend to congregate there. And, and I know, you know, there's really good riding roads. It's a really great place to, to train from. Um, but what prompted your move over to Girona? So yeah, I'd been I'd been in the UK for I think seven or eight years, and I wasn't particularly happy. They're mostly weather related. I don't cope well with the cold, and I was like, "There's something else. I don't know where it is." I'd been trying to get back to Australia every year, and just something something always kept me in Europe. And I was like, "There's somewhere else. I just don't know where it is." And I came to Girona. Yeah, like I said, four four years ago on a cycling trip. I'd actually never heard of Girona before at that point, um, and I was just coming with a friend to go cycling and. I got here and was like, oh, this is what I've been looking for. And then I got on the bike and I'm like, this is definitely what I've been looking for. And then I found, I'm like, oh, there's a lot of athletes that live here and there's no sports dietitians. I'm like, what have I got to lose? <laughs> also sort of moved and started my doctorate at the same time. So everyone's like, you are really crazy. But mm. uh, I mean, I already have my business, my own practice at this point. It was always virtual um, because I found that it wasn't always practical for people to physically come and see me. They were traveling, people were traveling a lot or they had work commitments or family commitments. And so I was already doing a lot of online remote work at that point. So yeah, so I came here, I just sort of instantly decided I want to move here. And um, then, yeah, I've been here, this, this is like coming up four years now that I've been sort of based in Jerome. I was um, in the UK a lot um, for the first couple of years, especially with my doctorate. Um, I probably would go back at least once a month for a couple of days for meetings and events. But I mean, over Europe tra travel, I could fly and get to Liverpool quicker than I could and cheaper than I could get a train ticket between Manchester and Liverpool. Um, so it, it made a lot of sense to be able to commute <laughs> into, internationally that easily. Yeah, wow. Um, and so you mentioned the professional doctorate there. Um, now, some people in some countries are like, what on earth is that? Isn't that a PhD? Can you tell us what the difference is? Because I know this is a thing in the UK, but in, not in, in other countries necessarily. Yeah, it's still relatively new. So it's it's equivalent a it's an equivalent qualification. So you still have a like a, a doctor a doctorate at the end of it, and it's similar to the traditional uh, PhD. Uh, the main difference though is it's much more applied research rather than being um, the tr more traditional PhD, which can be a lot more like rigid and uh, lab based historically. Um, but there's a key component of the professional doctorate about how you as a practitioner influence 
the results and influence um, you as an instrument as such. And so I had always wanted to do a PhD and I was working, um, I was sort of working in a boxing gym at the time uh, as part of the, the masters that I was doing beforehand at John Moores. And I was just like, how do I become more effective? Like I've been working as a dietitian for uh, the best part of 10 years and how do I get my athletes to change and change their behavior and eat better? And like how, because I was drip feeding information and you're finding that like it's, it might take them three, six months to actually do the things that you're recommending and, and, and trying to encourage them to do. And so I organized to meet a sports psychologist at the uni and I was like, like, okay, give me your tips and your tricks and your tools. Like I want to use them. And I was just becoming more interested in the, I guess, the psychological component of nutrition. And he's like, I think you should do a professional doctor. I was like, what is that? And uh, yeah, looking into it and realizing that there's the re- there's you as a researcher, there's you as a practitioner, but there's also you as an individual. And so within the professional doctor component, there's a, a huge amount of reflective practice. And so evaluating yourself and assessing yourself in terms of your goals and your direction, but also your effectiveness and how you are evolving and changing as you participate in your research and how you influence your research. So um it's very much an applied um, PhD, I guess you could call it, and so it become, can become a bit more messy science, but then can also be a lot more useful in practice. Yep, yep, awesome. Okay, um, and then back to the, the practitioner side of things. Um, you know, you've worked, as you said, as a sports dietitian privately with individual athletes for a long time, particularly in cycling and triathlon, um, but you also spent a bit of time working with in, in pro cycling with what was then Team Dimension Data. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about what that role involved? Yeah, so it was a part-time role, um, mostly remote, which a lot of roles can be in nutrition with, with team sports. So obviously we're supporting the individual riders with um, their nutritional questions. Some of them, uh, there's more weight sensitive and so supporting them to meet uh, meet, meet um weight goals um, for them others it's enhancing the nutrition composition of the diet of what they're eating on a daily basis there was a lot of work in the logistics of ensuring that you've got enough race food um, either in stock or at the right races uh, organizing supplements um, a lot of background information in terms of like protocols or uh, reading up on the latest research for example like ketones um, it's like is it really worth us investing thousands and thousands of dollars into this supplement is it really actually going to enhance performance is it worth it is it not worth it when you've got a limited um, budget so yeah there's quite a a range of different things and was able to go to a couple of races which was good fun but most of that role um, for me at the time was um was remote so um yeah I, i enjoyed it but it can be it can be very tiring when you're on the road um a lot of the time yeah, absolutely. We spoke to James Moran uh, a while ago, who's obviously done some work with Ineos and um, and Unox as well. Um, and yeah, it's a pretty full on gig, I imagine. Um, and trying to balance that with other things when it's part time would be a real struggle. For sure. Like I, I had another. Um, I potentially could have been working with another team uh, last year as well, and I, I did seriously consider it and then I thought about it and it was like I the, the particular role I think it's just really worth being aware of like what your vision is for your life and your goals and where you want to be and and the role would have been me being on the road all year round and I was like actually do you know what I've been living on the road for years like I just want to be in one place for a couple of months and a couple of years yep fair enough actually use your your house or your apartment or wherever you live yeah 
Um, okay. And more recently, I've seen on social media, you've been doing some work with Team Bike Exchange um, with one of, I think it was an altitude camp doing some more sort of yeah. food service sort of thing. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, that was fun. It was starring. It was fun. Um, I didn't know until I got there that there was going to be 20 people. Um, so I've done a few camps before. So um, I worked a few years ago. I did quite a few uh, camps with Swain Tuft. And uh, uh, so I've done the food and Zwift and a few other um, organisations. So the most I'd ever done was 20 people for a week. Uh, and so this was, there was actually two camps that um, overlapped for 10 days. And so, um, yeah, lots of different uh, logistical sort of challenges. Challenges. We were staying, we had at one point four apartments and we were cooking just in a, a pretty much a standard kitchen, a standard just house kitchen and trying to feed 20 people um, with big appetites. And the supermarket was an hour's drive away. And when you're feeding that many people, you're always buying two shopping trolleys of food a day. So I actually just got, I just downloaded the, all the receipts um, yesterday. I'm like, I need to actually write down, figure out how many kilos of rice did we go through and potatoes? and uh, we'll go into like 10, 10 loaves of bread a day and um, probably like 30 peaches a day at one point and so huge quantities of food. Um, yeah, so it, it was it was intense, but it, it was good fun. Um, yeah, basically I was enjoying all the food, breakfast, lunch, and dinner and a little bit of the fried food sort of snacks because the boys got a bit, they get they get flavor fatigued when you're eating when you're having to eat five thousand calories and stuff a day like it's pretty you get flavor fatigue pretty quick and um it's it's I find it really great actually eating with your athletes and riders at times because that's when the guards come down and people start to trust and be like oh you're eating food too I can I can talk to you it's like oh you're you're eating that it's like maybe I'm allowed to eat that as well and um. There's guys that have got, and girls, um, I work, I'm actually, most of my athletes, pro athletes at the moment are female, but the, the everyone's got different goals and um, things that they're working on. So some of them have, they're trying to get leaner and to get lighter um, for power to weight ratio. Others just can't keep the weight on them. Like there was like one guy who, he uses like, after every ride, he was, he ended up he was starting to make like jugs of smoothies, like proper big jugs, like probably litre jugs of smoothies with like half a thing of uh, frozen berries and who knows how much honey and stuff in there just because he was losing weight so easily and unwanted in an unwanted way at, at altitude so they've all got different goals and you can kind of just give them little tips and tricks that they can then hopefully apply when they're at home and not being fed all their meals yeah yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think that sits really well with our topic which of today, which is sort of I'm over gels and bars, what else is there? Um, and I think anyone that follows you on Instagram or has had a look at your, your website knows how much you love cooking and experimenting with snacks and recipes and, and things like that. Um, and obviously, you know, we just talked about the camp where you did that side of things. So where did that sort of passion or, um, or knowledge come from? I think I suppose from being a kid really like I've, I've always cooked I did like food service as a kid at school um when I was in Zambia like I, I remember I was probably cooking a lot of the meals for dinner and stuff from like 13 14 years old um so like, there's six in my family and um in, in Zambia we would often eat the main meal at lunch in the middle of the day and so I'd have like these exercises for school make this meal and just end up working out that you make it for the family and so I'm not very good at cooking for one but I'm very good at cooking for six and um so yeah I think I've always or 20 <laughs> yeah or well, 20 I mean yes I, it's, I yeah I can feed I can feed 20 like <laughs> it, that's I think that's my limit like I love cooking but I'm not a chef um yeah. I can make it taste good I can make it um I can make it look good but 
that's not my that's not I've I realized that I'm not a performance chef I wouldn't want to do that as my full-time role what I love and what I'm passionate about is actually the food and behavior change and showing people how to do that themselves and yeah so I think I've just always been interested in real food and um probably the like 20 year old me as a early dietitian would be horrified at the things that I eat and um, the things that I would recommend now um, versus back then. And I think it's it's separating with, with sports nutrition, it's separating every everyday nutrition with race nutrition and fuel and the timing of it. And so some of the things that you might be recommending, it's like it's putting it in the context of this is for someone that is doing and expending a huge amount of energy, much more than the, the average person. And you need to fuel that appropriately and um and the way you do that may not look the the ideal picture of health, but at the same time, you wouldn't be recommending these foods for someone that is is being sedentary or isn't expending much energy in sport. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that was one of our rants at one stage, Steph, early on in the podcast about that exact issue. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I mean, I even had a message on Instagram the other day about someone was like, "Oh, I can't believe like this person was eating McDonald's during an ultra race," and I'm like, "Yeah, but like they're they're expending eight thousand calories like plus a day. Like they need to get as much fat and as much sugar in as possible in as little volume of food because they physically can't eat enough to catch up." Yeah. So it's like, yes, then, but they're not doing that every day, and that's not like how they, well, ideally, not how they're living everyday life. Um, but like in that particular moment, it's like just putting in the closed brackets of this is the race sort of period or this is the training sort of period and ensuring that what they eat, breakfast, lunch, dinner outside of that is nutritious and has got good quality and is going to be um, more nutritional quality value. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, let's get into this this topic in terms of alternatives to, you know, gels and bars and things. So I guess, as you said, it's looking specifically at what you're eating and drinking while you're exercising, so whether it's running uh, or on the bike. Um, so when you're looking to create, like, a new snack for taking with you on a, on a ride um, or you're looking at someone else's idea or recipe that you've seen, what are the sort of the criteria that you're thinking in your mind in terms of whether this is or is not an appropriate option um, for, for a ride snack, like in terms of, I guess, the nutritional side of things, but also the practical side of it? Yeah, I think it's like it's important to consider like the practical element. It's got to be portable and it's got to be easy to eat um, because it's it's got to be, be tasty and it's got to be portable. And I think they're sort of probably the key things that I would look at, that it doesn't um, weigh a huge amount and could take up a small amount of space, especially for, say, we're like runners or triathletes or cyclists like they might only want to put it in their pocket and so it's not practical all the time to carry I don't know, like a kilo of potatoes with you to fuel your ride like there might be a, a good solution but it's not always the most practical um so yeah looking for energy density if it's um it, it always depends on the what's the purpose of that training session as to what sort of foods i'd advise for that so people are like oh like what do i eat it's like well how hard are you going how far are you going like is it obviously the higher the intensity the more simple carbohydrates and the more easy di digested quick give it to me now like i want it like right now sort of um energy whereas if it's more slower long duration that's where i'd have more fats and maybe some proteins in there as well so um i think 
salty sort of foods and trying to like experiment and find more salty options because the most majority of things that you can get commercially are sweet. And when you're consuming, like, I mean, I've got people that are varying their intake by, say, 2,500 calories to five, 6,000 calories a day. And so if you're having to eat two, 3,000 calories of sweet stuff, it gets sickly and gets you get over it really, really quickly. So, mm. um, yeah, going back to that, like making it pra- being really practical of is, is it going to fall apart? Can they eat it on the move or do they have to physically stop and open it and then stop so they don't um, – doesn't break? So, for example, like when I was in Andorra, I made this muesli sort of slice for the boys because they were getting sick of the bars and gels within a week. Like they get flavor fatigue so quick because they've got to eat, drink and eat so much of this stuff. Um, and so they're like, oh, like what can we have? Um, so I was making them banana cake and chocolate cake and, I don't know, blueberry cake. And that, I find that cake can work really well as a ride as a ride snack because then you can cut up, you can stick it in the freezer, it's, it's portable, it's moist, it's not too dry. So I think that's actually another good point ensuring that – your ride food isn't like super dry and it doesn't then require you to drink half a bottle of fluid to kind of be able to swallow it or to see so finding the right texture and it doesn't crumble. I think it took a couple of versions for me to find the right version of that sort of slice that it didn't, it wasn't even too hard so that they'll break in their teeth trying to eat it or at the same, same time that it wasn't like they take a mouthful and the rest of it falls to the ground. Yeah. Um, so there's always a little bit of experimentation about that and finding flavors and combinations that work for people. Mm, yeah, and I think it's it's something that people often overlook. Like they kind of think, oh, why are all these gels and bars all the same? Like they're all like kind of the same consistency. But, you know, there's a reason for that. They've kind of evolved to be that based on obviously feedback from the people that have used them in terms of, as you said, like the texture that it's not too hard, um, too crunchy, yeah. involves too much chewing and swallowing while you're breathing heavily during exercise, or as you said, it yeah. crumbles and sort of falls apart and you, you lose a lot of it. So, you know, there's always mm-hmm. that... Um, those things and i guess then some of the other factors like even some of the like the original power bars you see like you know if it gets too hot they become this like sticky mess and if they're too cold you're going to break your jaw or your teeth trying to get into them Uh, like i call it the red skin effect like those lollies yeah and this is why i think there isn't really like a a one-size approach for like ride fuel or training fuel like race fuel and there can be different things they might they might work together but it's you've also got to think about the weather the country so like i know like my aussie riders and my aussie athletes um in the peak of summer like especially the ones up in brisbane um, everything just melts. And so, like, yeah, while they might love to eat rice or use rice cakes or, like, rice bars as their fuel, like, it just it just sort of melts in their pocket. And so it doesn't it, – this is why they might then resort to using more commercial products because of the stability. At the same time, um, like, winter here in Spain last year was the coldest winter I've had in, like, over a decade. And I've never experienced it where I've had food in my pockets freezing before. And so, like, you'd be t- I'd be taking out, like, I don't know, like, stroop waffles and stuff and they'd, like, snap frozen and, you like, having to, like – try and warm them up in your pocket like your hands so having to physically stop in order to eat them so it is very much a case of thinking about all those sort of practical things and mixing and matching to find um the right foods that suit you and the timing and yeah i think there's there's lots of things the practical components that people don't always consider and I find it interesting how a lot of athletes, or amateur athletes particularly, will just default to, to jars and to, to gels and uh, commercial sort of products because they think, oh, that, that's what you have to eat. It's like, no, you can 
you can get so much stuff from the supermarket, like whether it's like pre-made biscuits or cakes or like lollies or um, dried fruit or even what like recently I was taking um, like flavoured crackers because I was like, I want something salty and there's all these like, like tomato flavoured ones or sort of cheesy ones and they're kind of just in little bits so you can kind of stick the po- whole packet in your pocket and just like munch on them. Works better for longer sort of slower duration rides but um, maybe not. But then you can also align that with like a gel or a drink for your efforts or intensity. So I think mm. even within the same ride or the same training set of session, you can't, it's not that you have to use one or the other. You can kind of mix them and match them according to the profile. That's all we do with the riders in, um, during racing. And so like, like Tour de France, for example, like they're out on the bike for like five hours plus sometimes. And so they're not just having gels and drinks and that whole time. They're using real food as well. It might be sandwiches. It might be like little bits of cake or brioche or croissant or, um, but there's also the, the commercial stuff in there as well, but they'll time it and mix it and match it depending on what the the stage is like looking like how technical it is, how intense it is and how flat it is and all those sorts of things. So uh, I think there is lots of things to sort of consider. And this is where kind of like pre-planning what you're going to eat ahead of your ride or your run is important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just wondering, like, um, you know, you've been working for a while in this field now, has your thinking around sort of these types of foods and options and, and what you'd consider like a, a useful choice in a particular scenario or not, has that kind of changed or evolved over time given either changes in science or more so the feedback that you get from the athletes you work with or I know you do a lot of writing um, yourself um, based on your own sort of self-experimentation? Yeah, I think, yeah, definitely. It definitely has. Like, I think I... And this is more like allowing foods perhaps and having less food rules. So even though I, I would always say I've always had a really healthy relationship with food, I think um, if I think back to like 10 years ago, me, I was, um, I, I'm still very much a huge whole foods, real foods approach. But I going back then, like I ate very little, if any, processed foods or lollies and stuff like that. And I actually, I think I recorded a video when I was in Mallorca, I haven't posted it, but about how like, the 10 year ago me would be horrified that I'd be eating a whole packet of Haribo like lollies in this ride um, because it's like, oh, that's that's bad. And it's actually, it's just, it's context. Like, yes, if you're eating that as a snack food, it's not the best choice. Um, but if you're eating it in a ride and you're about to climb this massive hill and you need a lot of fuel, then it's perfect because it's not going to put any strain and, and pressure on your gut. So I think um, more my thinking has evolved to become more inclusive with foods and less black and white there's a huge amount of nuance with nutrition and these foods have a place i wouldn't say like it's not that i'm recommending the processed stuff as everyday food but it has its place it's just all of that comes back to the timing of when your body needs that fuel and fueling for fuel fuel your rides fuel fueling your training appropriately Mm, yes it sounds like it's kind of moved I guess to be a bit, for lack of a better term, like a little bit less ideological and a bit more pragmatic, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, because I think I, th- I see sometimes, um, and it's even it's been interesting myself this year. Is I, I haven't cooked very much at all this year. I've relied a lot more on t- like not takeaway, but like more eating out of restaurants or other people feeding me while I was finishing my doctorate. And just because I had, didn't have the capacity or that I was just too tired or mentally tired to to cook and to fuel. And um, and there can be 
I can't, there can be these sometimes expectations or like, oh, you, you must, or you should cook every single meal from scratch. And it's just not practical. Like you can use pre-cooked or processed or frozen or meal delivery services. They all have their place. It's just learning to find how and where, like it, there's, there's always a way you can improve the way you, you feel everyday food and also training food. But um, it doesn't, it's not so black and white, I think. So yeah, I think that's probably definitely one. The, being more pragmatic and realistic is um, as of aged, I suppose. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, have you have you been able to use your kind of creations that you you make in the kitchen and stuff um, with the professional writers and, and teams? Have you seen them? Do they do they use your creations or how's that? I see them like on, I see them on Instagram and occasionally like some of the guys that I've, I've worked with in the past because yeah I've got quite a lot of athletes pro athletes that like I follow or like I sort of interact with I, I know um I, like, like I know a lot of athletes here in Jordan it's probably about um oh, 200 pro cyclists I think this is the last count that live in Girona and then there's another couple hundred pro triathletes that sort of come in and out and so there's a lot of athletes um that I know and so yeah like I see them like sort of sometimes using them or they do that um and trialing them I think it just depends on they don't always um make it like promote it or um share that to, to share that to the world um but yeah I do have good conversations with them like it, with my I've, my podcast has been on on pause this year while I've been finishing the doctorate but one of the things I was keen on sort of promoting through that was just having conversations with these pro athletes to show what they eat in training and in racing and how that can differ depending on the the season or the time of year or um and showing examples of ways that they feel because i think it's it does surprise but there is still a, this big misconception or assumption that pro athletes don't eat carbs or are underfeeling and it's the complete opposite the more the even in the last two years um the way that they're fueling now versus two years ago has really in- improved and guys that were like maybe trying to aim for 60 grams of carbs per hour in training or racing two years ago are now aiming for 100 and plus in some of their training and racing and they get, they're getting leaner, they're getting stronger and they're getting better performances as a result. And so um, the I think it is, it is great to see that the culture is changing for sure. Nutrition is being much more valued at a pro elite level and hopefully that starts to trickle down to the amateurs as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Just on that, I'm, I'm curious, like, uh, you know, you've, you've said that, you know, things are becoming a lot more professional on the nutrition side and I totally agree with that. Do you think that's a bit of a, for lack of a better term, a Team Sky effect in terms of, you know, there was one sort of team that came in and did things a bit differently. You know, they came from that sort of institute of sport model in in England, um, sort of adopted that, brought across a whole bunch of staff from that model uh, that were doing that sort of with Olympic sports. Because, you know, you tend to think pro cycling kind of quite old school in terms of the culture and their approach to nutrition, or it has been traditionally. Yeah, um, it still can think, be. <laughs> yeah, and, and do you think that, and you've seen, you're right, you've seen that change in the last few years. Do you think that's because a team like Sky have come in with it, you know, without that sort of old traditional culture, because it was a new team, coming with that, institute of sport kind of mindset and approach to things have been very successful and then everyone else is then going okay what are they doing and then how do we sort of jump on that bandwagon as well has that been your experience i think it's definitely it certainly plays a role 
Um, um, but like I said, there's still very much a lot of old school. Back in my day when I raised, we didn't eat. We lived on water and bread and blah, blah, blah. Sort of there is still a lot of that culture. Um, so I know I remember at the Giro getting told off by one of the DSs um, and I needed to tell the, the chef to change dinner because we had two pizzas for eight riders that was probably going to give them about 20 grams of carbohydrates each. And it was like, they're going to be fat. They're going to be super slow tomorrow. They're not going to have to climb. And I'm like, they need so much more carbohydrate than that. And, um, so there's still mixed messages and there's a lot of discrepancies between teams. So the girls, um, the girls teams is like still nutrition is not highly valued, unfortunately, in most female teams um, with the girls that I work with. The men seems most of them um, are valuing nutrition a lot better, not all of them. Again, it depends on the team and the team culture and the beliefs of the team management um, at times. Um, I think part of it is that they can't keep up if they don't feel well. And if the riders are underfueled in training and if they're underfueled in the racing, like they just they just can't compete on the same level. And what was really interesting at like on, on the camp is like when I was in Andorra was chatting with the guys, some of them that are in, retiring, they've been racing for like 10, 15 years. And they're sort of saying how the guys now that are racing in like their early 20s are hitting numbers that like they were aiming for to hit when they're in their 30s. Um, and part of this is the um, their training with power meters from a younger age. So they've had this this really long period of training at a really explicit, uh, specific manner. So they're stronger, um, but also they've most of them are really feeling a lot better. And so if you combine better training quality and better fueling, the performance kicks up. And if you're under fueling and you're under you're under training. Um, you just can't compete with that. And so as a result, some of it is being forced to step up. And um, if you don't want to get left behind, but also like say it's that competition of like, oh, what are they doing? Um, it's like, oh, if they're doing it, then we've got to do it too. So um, there can be, it can be multi-factorial, but I think definitely like say the, the fact that Team Sky did have that really um, thorough approach. And my supervisor was um, James Morton. So he, uh, my, my doctor, and so like, I know, and part of it, we, we learned a lot about what they used and what they did and the, the things that they put in place around nutrition um, and then putting a priority on it um, and by ensuring that the quality was there year-round, not just um, not just focusing on while they're racing, but also thinking, okay, how are these guys fueling and eating outside of the racing sort of period and can we support that sort of better? And, um, yeah, it all it all has a big, big role to play for sure. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Um, I was just going to also say, just in terms of um, the the professional riders, do you see much of a difference from what um, in terms of the suitability of, of snacks that they're eating compared to recreational um, riders? Like, is there a big difference? Um, I think what I often quite see the more of the it, it varies from. It does vary um, because the, the like I probably see some of the riders using more real food as ride food um, because they're drinking liters and liters and liters of sports drink and like of gels a year and so they get they're just sick of it they do, they don't want to touch the stuff outside of a race um, so obviously but they're they're training like 20, 30 hours a week they need to fuel that training well so I do see a lot of them using more real food and snacks in training just because it just gets so they get so bored and sick of eating um 
but yeah, probably other differences. Um, but again, it, it comes down to the individual athlete. Like there is still a lot of eating disorders. There's still a lot of disordered eating in pro sport and amateur sort of level. And so while there are athletes that are fueling amazingly, there are also others that are really under fueling. And so um, that doesn't necessarily always reflect on their performance at the moment, but it, it more often has an impact on when they crash or um, if they get sick. Um, that's where you see the biggest negative sort of impact. Um, but, yeah, I think it, it does vary from athlete to athlete, which like anything – it depends on the individual how much the athlete, the particular individual, is interested or cares or thinks that thinks that it's a priority or not. Um, so, uh, I yeah, there's the, there's athletes, professional athletes who are very professional about everything in their life, including nutrition, and then there's professional athletes that like eh, doesn't matter, and maybe getting away with it for now, but whether they get away with it in two, three, four, five years time, or if, um, if that sort of compromises their long-term performance, we'll have to wait and see. And do you, um, I guess in terms of when you make your own your own food and, and real food options, one aspect um, to consider is obviously how easy is it to kind of, yeah, package and then open, um, whether it be like for riders and even for, you know, ultra runners and, and things like that as well. So do you have any tips in terms of like what you can use um, for those, you know, do-it-yourself things that we make? Um, any tips on what we should be using for packaging to make it kind of easy to, to access? Yeah. I mean, I really like the, the, the double-sided like foil parchment paper um, stuff. In the UK, you could get it super easy. In Spain, it's impossible. I'm pretty sure it's a bit difficult in Australia as well. Um, mm, yeah. It like when you can get it, like it's. I find it's. It can be multi. It can be quite durable for like multi use. So like I often will use it um, again and again and again before it sort of like disintegrates. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a bit harder to get. I tend to just use foil and and and, pa- and baking and baking paper as a, a double layer because if you just use foil, you end up eating foil. Yeah. And then if you try <laughs> and and if you like, you can use cling film, but then mm-hmm. the, the glad wrap, but then mm-hmm. the glad wrap sort of doesn't really keep it stable as much i've tried i've tried with um a few like different um more like environmentally friendly sort of solutions i've tried with the bees wax wrap and stuff like that but the problem with that is it just it increases it takes up so much space and so you can fit one pocket one one or two like things in your pocket where normally you could fit four um so from that sort of perspective, it is a bit more complicated. It's what is interesting. I've noticed here in Spain, especially or in, in Europe, since COVID and lockdown, because we had uh, so yeah, March last year we went into a hard lockdown. We couldn't leave the house for six weeks, and then when we eventually let out, we could only go out for an hour. But then everything was closed. The taps, the water taps were closed. All the shops were closed. So where previously you'd be able to buy food and drinks on the way or pick up water on the way you started having to carry everything with you and where I've noticed there's been more of a trend of riders being and it's being more acceptable of carrying bar bags and um, and things on your bike. So I've seen more riders carrying more food yeah. from that perspective because then they can fit more stuff mm. um, rather than it just sort of being limited on the pockets. Mm. And that can definitely be helpful in winter when you're also carrying like jackets and gloves and mm. extra things as well. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it's the the packaging. 
the packaging component is is difficult I know, and easy access. I also know some people using um, like the, I don't know, I can't remember the name of them, but they're sort of like reusable silicon bag containers. Um, so and so they sort of snap clothes. I've seen people using those for like say dried fruit and bits and pieces because then you can kind of put like the whole bag in your pocket and just um, stick your hand in your pocket and pull them, pull them out. But again, it all comes down to the the intensity of what what you're doing. Uh, I was speaking to an athlete yesterday that was racing on the weekend and new race suit, and they just couldn't get their they, they couldn't get their their food out of their pockets, and so um, they had it with them, and um, but they just for whatever reason they, they couldn't get it out. And this is that was one of the things I found in my my doctorate research is that during race nutrition athletes generally these days know more of what to do. They're feeling, but then it's the underfeeling because of either the opportunity or other things going on around them. So, yeah, just being aware of those sort of factors, I practice doing them and using them, testing them out during training to find the best solution or if your equipment, I think because people don't usually think about like, oh, my equipment, I'm, like, I'm not actually going to access it. Oh, I've got it there. It's in my pocket. But like if you, if you can't get it out of your pocket or you can't open it with your gloves, mm. um, so yeah. – like so, some people I find recommending them to just pre-open their bar, their bag, their, their pre-open bars and bags, or I know some people that even open gels or just like open them just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is very much a case of like testing out different products to find firstly the texture and the flavors that you like and that work with your gut, um, but also like how practical and user friendly is it for you to get into it, and can you get into it if you, without without like having to stop and use both hands. Mm. Mm. I've always had this vision of like people trying to open something that's been cling wrapped. Like you think about when you're a kid in primary school and your parents have like cling wrapped your sandwich and it's taking like half an hour to find where it starts and open it. I could just imagine some poor bloke halfway through an Ironman or something, pulling something out of his back pocket and then just looking at this thing that's cling wrapped and going, where do I start? Like, yeah, it'd just be so frustrating. But, yeah, obviously foil is great because you can just tear it. That's definitely with a foil, um, like the, the rice cake technique. I find that really, really useful. I don't know if you ever, like, because it, it, it just, it's just easy to get into. Um, mm. It's so much easier to get into. But then with the cling film, it's sort of you can squish it and make it make it small. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It used to be, um, I think we call it Reynolds paper, and you used to be able to get it from Spotlight in in Australia at least, um, that sort of paper that they you typically use when you're doing rice, you know, you're making the rice yeah. um, rice sandwiches and snacks. But, yeah, it's, it's yeah. definitely much more difficult, um, difficult to get and access. Um, thinking about um, runners a bit, um, some of the snacks, obviously, some of sometimes the more solid snacks, depending on the length that they're running for, um, might not be what the writers have um uh, do you have any sort of popular ones that you see runners um really enjoy in terms of do-it-yourself options um are there any particular ones that that stand out for you that you see a lot of runners kind of find easy to easy to access yeah I think for for do-it-yourself things um and especially for running, I find things that sort of dissolve in your mouth or that are, like you don't really have to chew sort of help. So it's kind of, I think, what, why the things like the shop blocks um, or um, 
or the cheap the, the cheap version is just Haribo and or like jelly snakes. I'm yeah. like, it's the same thing and tastier and a lot cheaper. Yeah. Um, but the um, I think from a real food sort of perspective, uh, like dried fruit is actually a really good one for this because um, especially things like pawpaw or pineapple, um, well, probably more pawpaw than, um, than pineapple because pineapple can be a little bit fibrous, but because um, you can get dried pawpaw and it's it's very energy dense, um, but it, it it dissolves really quickly and every, like, you need, it needs a little, little chewing. Um, so that's probably one thing that I do see um, some of the runners. I, I work with many runners. I mostly just work with cyclists and triathletes these days. But um, that's one thing I see them using um, a little bit. Sometimes I've seen some of them trying to use um, like energy balls or making their own with like nut butters or um, oats. But like I say, it takes they're having to chew it, and so it can be a bit more difficult to chew i have i have actually had some of my runners using like baby boiled potatoes before because um which from a like they're not sweet you still get the carbohydrate from them but when they're really young and they're really small like they can kind of almost like just dissolve in the Mm. mouth um a little bit as well but yeah the running is is much more difficult and that's why i find most of the runners or the triathlete during the run leg um, using more gels or drinks as their fuel source. And I think uh, I think that's probably a, a reason why I've seen a lot more. There's been a lot of athletes I've seen recently move over to using Morton as a fuel, even though it's expensive, is because the, um, the texture of the gels is more like chewable water is kind of how I would describe it. And because it's not very sweet, um, I found athletes finding it easier to sort of like take a little bit and then take a little bit and take a little bit versus a standard gel. I mean, this, there's so many different textures of gels. So there's gel and there's a gel. Some of them are super liquidy. Some of them are super, super thick and different people have different preferences. And so with that, so um, there's some that like the fact that it's super liquid, they could just like down it. Others prefer the more chewable solid thing. So it is, yeah, the, I think from a, a DIY version. Other things I've seen athletes through runners do is using uh, honey, sachets of honey um, from a, a, a more longer, slower um, duration and sachets of like peanut butter as well. Um, but the thing with that is it can get a bit tacky in your mouth. But I have seen a lot of my like ultra athletes using things like peanut butter mm. um, as sachets of like peanut butter as a, as a fuel. Yeah. Um, and so do you have any particular do-it-yourself sports drink that you um, you find your either riders or, or runners really enjoy? Is there um, a, a sort of, I guess, any tips for, for listeners in terms of if they're wanting to make, you know, a kind of a, a sports drink, they're not wanting to um, purchase it from the supermarket? Any, what are the things that you're looking at for in, in a sports drink? Yeah, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't had that many athletes make their own sports drink. Um, I have had some in the past where they used maple syrup as their energy source, although I'm like, that's really expensive, like, <laughs> fuel. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, is it really giving you much energy from that? Um, yeah, like, I sometimes juice. Yeah. Uh, I, I find, do some people find that just using, um, like whether it's apple juice or orange juice as as a sports drink as, a, as instead of sports drink and then maybe adding a bit more salt into it as well. That's probably the most 
consistent one I've seen people using um, just in terms of it being palatable and being easy to drink and not um, uh, being super strong. Um, the other, I have a few people that make their own um, use just they buy plain maltodextrin yeah. and fructose and mix it themselves yeah. I have a few that do that and then maybe add some lemon juice or some flavor so I do have people that do that as well yeah. um but in terms of using real food yeah I think I've had people that have used maple syrup and lemon juice that's probably the most common one that I see but I haven't personally tried it because I'm like well, I'd rather like put that on pancakes to be honest. And I'm like, yeah. and I'm like, that's expensive. I'm like, I buy maple syrup like once every three months. I'm like, oh, I'm not really going to use it there. So, yeah. um, yeah, the drinks, I think more because I don't tend, I don't frequently use yeah. sports drinks myself unless it's extremely hot or extremely cold. So, yeah. um, in those situations, I just resort to um, a, a pre-made one for simplicity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think, yeah, a good one that we use and I think, um, I don't know if it's the same for you, Alan, but Greg Cox got me onto this. You, you know Greg Cox, um, Gemma? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Coxie's um, recipe that we often use with the ultra runners a fair bit is um, his polyjewel chicken stock kind of recipe. So, oh, yeah. yeah, so that's that's always a good one where you just get, um, yeah, you get maltodextrin and then you get, it doesn't yeah. have to be chicken stock, any type of stock, um, and then make that up into a, make that up into a drink as well, just for then, you know, and I used to have that in my running, ultra running sessions and I could have that cold or hot. Um, okay. so yeah. it's quite nice. Um, so, um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's. Yeah. I, like my, I haven't worked with as many, um, runners. Yeah. Yeah. Most of my, most of my athletes have been cyclists or triathletes. Yeah. So I haven't had a few, a few runners, but like, this is the thing, like, I'm like, whenever I have like a runner, I'm like, yeah, go see that person. Yeah. <laughs> this, I was like, oh, totally. this, this is what, this, this is, this is my area of expertise. And I'm like, it's like, I, I can help you to an extent, but I'm like. Yeah, um, you're better off seeing someone that specialises in that field and can give the best advice. Yeah, no, we I think we all do that. I will handball things to um, Alan and other people as well because it's yeah. Um, but um, the the one thing is just with your do it yourself um, snacks. Do you find um, that uh, there's anything they need to consider just in terms of like um, food safety or hygiene issues? Are there things that you know, listeners will will be listening, and they they might want to jump on to making um, making the portable snacks. What do they need to consider, yeah. just in terms of from a food safety or hygiene um, perspective? So f- the first thing I probably say, if you're making uh, like rice cakes or like rice bars, um, is just be be aware like that of the duration and when you make them and how long you're keeping them in the fridge for. Like I have done it before where I've made them. I put them in the fridge and I've sort of I've sort of forgotten when I made them and I'm like, oh yeah, they'll be fine. And then I've taken them out and then I'm like, I've taken a bite, I'm like, mmm, something's wrong there. And then spat it, I'm like, and then open, I'm like, oh, it's moldy. Like that's that's not good. So um I think it is like rice is known <laughs> to cause gut issues. Luckily I didn't get sick. Um I think I spat it out like soon enough and didn't swallow it. So um yeah, like with with like with the rice cakes, like in maximum three days in before like and then chuck it out so making smaller batches can be useful um for that um but 
yeah, for other things, um, I think what's interesting with the, the well, I, it's what I found really interesting with FODMAPs is some of the athletes I've had that, like, they have issues with certain foods in everyday life, but then they tolerate them okay in, in running so or in, in cycling. I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. But then they could have the same food, like, two hours later when they're not exercising and it's causing them all sorts of issues. So, um I think don't write stuff off because you don't tolerate it every day. Like you might actually be okay during training. But this is where like you have to test it out there. It's the only way you're going to know if something works or not. But, yeah, I think the most important thing is is just um, with anything that is more moist, just being aware of like how quickly things can go moldy or go off. And so like cakes, if you're making like I – like, I often use cake as ride fuel um and yeah you, you leave it in the cupboard and you sort of forget it's been there for a couple of days and then it's, you take it out and like oh it's growing little fuzzies um so stick it in the freezer like package it up and stick it in the freezer and then you've got it to last a lot longer mm. and it keeps it going for emergencies then so like i rode, I rode yesterday and i was like oh, i've got new food in the house I'm like, oh, i've got chocolate cake in the freezer yes <laughs> that's what i'm eating and i guess on a hot day as well um like even something like a rice cake even if you made it that morning like if it's sitting yeah. in your back pocket for three or four hours in the sun, probably not the best yeah. time to, to be eating it. But I guess that's the other advantage of freezing it is that you can put it in your pocket frozen and by the time you're going to eat yeah. it three or four hours later, it's just right. Yeah, and it's interesting with the, the rice cakes, the rice bars, is that like the the texture does change when you freeze it. But like, I know so many athletes, and these are pros as well, that do freeze their rice cakes because, again, it just makes their life easier. Mm. And you're like, yeah, it changes. I mean, it's not ideal, but like... It's still food. It's still mm. edible. <laughs> yeah. And I find also like obviously, you know, when you're racing or whatever, um, you like say I might get um, as an example ho- home brand lollies that I find yeah. they're great because they're just like they tear really easily. Um, but yeah. it's not something that I kind of am, like really look forward to sitting down at home and, and eating. No. So you, it, it just, no. it, it changes. So I can, I can just imagine the guys with the rice cakes, you know, you freeze it, um, yeah. wouldn't taste fantastic if we, if we did that at home, but when you, when they're racing, it's kind of like, okay, like, yeah. Oh, 100%. And, like, yeah, like the rice bars and rice cakes, like they're like, I never want to eat another rice cake in my life. They're like, but they'll only eat them in a race or they won't eat them in a race yeah. <laughs> because they're so sick of eating them. Eating. So, yeah, um, yeah, like it is interesting that you point there about like the, the lollies and stuff. So it's not um, – it's just putting the context of that it's training food, it's racing food, it's not everyday sort of food. So, like I've often – I've had clients in the past who were eating like a packet of lollies at night time yep. just as a snack while watching TV and that – and reframing is like you do realize that's for gels, yeah. and they're like, "What?" <laughs> and it's like, which if you're training, that'd be perfect. That would yeah. be exactly what I'd want you to be having because yeah. it's easy to eat, it's tasty. It's, but I'm like, while you're sitting watching TV, like that's not yeah. what your body needs at yeah. that moment. Yeah, yeah, and it can be easy to get into that routine as well. Like you just, yeah, you do. You get used to having it um, in your training and and racing, and then you've got it at home, so you kind of then you can just kind of go for it as well. So, yeah, really important yeah. To, to point out. Um, are there any particular – so we've talked a lot about, obviously, the do-it-yourself you, you, sort of um, things that we can make, um, but are there any particular kind of commercial sports nutrition products that go beyond drinks, gels and energy bars 
um, that you find are also really handy for for athletes that are wanting something a bit different to the gels? Like what are some other options? Well, that's a good question. Um, in terms of traditional sort of sports nutrition products. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think... Yeah, I think in terms of specific sort of sports stuff, there's not really anything that jumps to mind um, immediately. I think often I find them just like re, like not educating or just advising people that they that they can use stuff in the supermarket, like so that and often that can be tastier and it might be like cheap, like the muesli bars for example, versus a Cliff Bar. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a Cliff Bar has got forty grams of carbohydrate in it, um, but then the texture could be a bit dry and and I find people get get flavor fatigue, whereas like you might a muesli bar, maybe you have to eat four of them because they're tiny, because the portion sizes are designed for the general population. Um, but they're usually quite moist and tasty, um, and there's a, a lot of variety, so you can get different options. And so I think um, just reframing uh, foods that you can you can get at e- easily in the supermarket. Um, even I've had people like using Oreos yep. um, and just taking a packet of packet of Oreos on the ride. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's stuff that you wouldn't advise for everyday health, um, but it's like okay, yeah, that's perfect for like a three two three hour ride or whatever it is that they're doing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what about like, do you find the they like the things like the waffles or pikelets and and stuff like that? Do they go down pretty well? Yeah, 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 yep, yep, definitely. So there, the, like the waffles are pretty easy to access in the supermarket here. The strip waffles, and again, they're um, they're a little bit more moist. I think that's the, the key thing is thinking about how easy is this is to chew and to swallow. Is it super dry? Um, I think people don't really appreciate just how important the moisture is to be able to swallow things. And um, so, like, especially if you're doing like what I used to call like the bar tape tours, where like you spend the whole time on the bar, like the bride just like staring at your bar tape, just holding on for dear life. And, and um, they're the sorts of a tr- sessions where like you just you can't chew anything, like you just and and using drinks or really concentrated mixes can be useful there because like every mouthful gives you more of a boost and more energy. Um, so yeah. It, it, it isn't like this simple, like one size fits all approach. And again, like what I think is amazing and tastes also is so super good. Like you might think, like oh, that's gross. Um, and I mean, like for example, like a real food option I use a lot in, and I think like using like tortilla wraps, like the the little wraps, is a really useful way um, to fuel a lot of rides because you can make it very versatile. Like like I always have wraps in my house, and here they tend to be quite small. It's about I think thirty grams of carbs per per wrap but then I might chuck like Vegemite on it or cheese on it or ham on it and so I prefer salty stuff and so I can make them all salty where other people might put peanut butter and honey or banana or um, Nutella on it and so it's or jam even um and it's a really quick easy it fits in your pocket super 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 easily and it doesn't take up a lot of space um but can ensure that you get the fuel that you need so yeah it is kind of like thinking multifactorial about like the intensity, like the, the packaging, the the durability of it, the, the portability of it, it's um, and pers- your personal preferences as well. There's a few things to think about. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I guess finally for the listeners, um, we've talked obviously a lot about the the do it yourself um, food ideas and and recipes. 
where would you recommend they can go to? So I know, Alan, and I know you've got a fantastic um, blog and, and Instagram and things like that. So, um, yeah, where would you recommend um, our listeners can go just to, to seek some of those ideas out? I think probably one of my favourite resources that I send a lot of people or recommend they get the books is the Scratch Labs Portables. Um, especially if you're interested in real food, I think like I like the company's a brand. Like I can't, we can't get it in Spain, which is I'm very sad about. But um, the the books, um, they they do base a lot of emphasis on using real food as fuel, and so they've got lots of ideas of sweet and salty um, options and things that you can pour. Like that you can use just using everyday sort of foods um, that you can make really quickly. Um, so they've got quite a few different recipe books I recommend and a lot of their their um, recipes on the websites and stuff as well. And another person I often refer people to is uh, Lentine Alexis. She, has, uh, she also works for Scratch Labs, but she's got an amazing um, like website full of thousands of recipes of ride food or training food and snacks and um, so that I definitely think is worth worth checking out as well. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Cool. Um, thank you um, so much. Wealth of, of information. And, um, yeah, you explained that really well. Like it is just so obviously it, it's very varied in terms of when um, athletes will use particular foods um, depending on their training session, their, their racing and just individual preference as well. And, and, you know, that can change over time too. So where something's working really well for a certain period of time, um, all of a sudden it doesn't um so it it's yeah. yeah it's really individual but um you've shown that you can just um you keep experimenting um and don't think that we just need to rely on sports nutrition products i think you've shown really well that you can make it yourself or you can very easily go to the supermarket save a bit of money and then get even yeah. more creative because there's just so many flavors and and a lot of variety so um, yeah, thank you. Thanks very much for, for all of that info. You're welcome. And now I'll shoot over to Alan. Yeah, so we're going to finish off with our bonus round where we find out a little bit more about you besides uh, cooking and, and making ride snacks. Um, so first <laughs> question, if you could do anything besides what you're doing now, maybe wind the clock back 10 or 15 years and start again, what do you think you'd do? do you know it's hard because I think when you love what you do um it's like it's hard to see anything else I mean there's probably been two points where I've considered leaving nutrition and going into other um fields like I'm I, I love the water and I could just spend all day at the beach and love it so much so at one point I thought I was I thought about oh, I didn't think about it, like scuba diving or like I'm um, just um yeah, I, was, I thought about staying in, in Asia about that. But probably the other thing that I love doing is I love singing. Um, and a few years ago when I lived in Liverpool, I did actually at one point consider leaving nutrition for music. Um, mm -hmm. But it's like well, I loved nutrition a bit too much. I so. actually think that I was um, looking through your Instagram and I reckon I have heard you singing and beautiful voice so um yeah amazing yeah yeah so anyone yeah they should shoot over and, and have a listen so yep yeah I need to I need to get back into it I was actually I sang a lot I took my guitar with me to Andorra so I was I, I was playing um one of the guys was playing guitar with me so 
um, we sort of talked about we need to actually get together and do some jamming and find. Problem is, I don't know songs that like I have no pop culture knowledge of music. So there's songs that people are like, oh, you know this song? I'm like, no, never heard of it. And so we were like, we just struggled to find um, songs that mutual that we mutually sort of know. But uh, yeah, have to now that he's not racing because the, the season's finished for the the guys um, before he heads, heads back to Australia. I need to like be like, right, let's let's do this. Let's make this happen. Cool. Um, is there something on your bucket list that you haven't yet done? Yeah, I'd actually really love to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. It's been on my list since I was a kid, actually, um, and just never never made it up there yet. So one day I'll get there, but not yet. There you go. Steph's done it. We've actually had this conversation with someone else. I think it was Sam Impey had that answer as well. Oh, uh, really? That was his funny. I think because his partner's done it. Uh, yeah, I think it yeah. was his partner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yep, highly, highly recommend. Um, yeah, um, I think it. Yeah, it was. It was fantastic. A few people hallucinating when they were um, going up, but mm. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I did. The, I did the Inca Trail a couple of years ago. So I, um, I think I can't remember how high that one up that was. But yeah, I remember it being so weird when you like you're like, oh, there's only like two hundred meters to go, and it takes you like an hour. <laughs> it's yeah, and it's <laughs> bloody cold. Yeah, can imagine. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, obviously, there's been quite a lot of things happening this year in the sporting world from, you know, price, pro cycling, um, you know, pro triathlon circuit, um, the Olympics and Paralympics, obviously. Is there anything that you can pick out of that as your sort of your favourite sporting moment from 2021? Yeah, well, uh, I guess, like, because, like I said, I've got quite a few female uh, pro, pro riders that I work with, so supporting them at the Olympics was, was awesome and seeing them race. Um, but, yeah, in particular, one of my athletes, she was racing and won both her national and road and time, and time trial um, uh, championships, and then seeing her then race um, Roubaix in her full uh, country kit was, was really cool, also, especially with it being the first female um, Paris-Roubaix um, I think they've been mm. two key moments. I, I always like love seeing my athletes and the people that I work with um, do well at whatever level and make improvements and and um, achieve their goals. So that was that was one that made me happy. Yeah, such a great weekend, Roubaix. Like to have both events now and on different days as well. Like obviously, yeah. your races like Flanders or Liège, like you have one and then the other, and you you don't really get much coverage of the women's race because it's sort of cutting backwards and forwards between the men, or you've got two different streams going depending on where you live. Uh, but it was so good to have the two events on different days, and um, you know both of them were obviously wet. Probably the men's was a bit more muddy. The women's uh, maybe not quite as much, but created two quite different events, which was great. Um, is there a sport that you've always wanted to try but never had the chance? I don't think there is actually. Like, I think um, because I, I've, always, I've always been very adventurous, I've always um, done things. Um, yeah, I, I think most things that I've ever wanted to do, I've given them a, a, a go. So yeah, there's nothing I could specifically think of from a sport perspective that I'm like, oh, one day, one day. I think I've always tried to live by like live in the now as well as the future, not just um, living for the future. Yep. Yeah, no, fair enough. Okay. Uh, and on that topic, um, any piece of advice that you live by or motto? <laughs> yeah, I think probably another key one that I've sort of always lived by is I'm probably a big component from my upbringing of living overseas and doing like, yeah, 
I've, I've traveled a lot. Um, it would be to spend your money on experiences, not things. Um, and yeah, so I've always, I think, um, invested more of my, um, more in terms of like uh, traveling or doing sport or rather than going out and drinking or like um, buying things. And so, yeah, I may not own that many things, but I've been to a lot of places and seen a lot of amazing things. And so, um, yeah, I think. Uh, the other one is like see spend your money on, on memories um so yeah live, i guess living living an active and a full life i think that's a a key thing for me yeah yeah absolutely good advice all right well thank you so much for your time Gemma. uh hopefully this has woken you up a little bit to get on with the rest of your day yeah. um but great to hear um some of the tips and tricks around different sort of ride snacks and some of the things that we need to consider that it's not just about you know this flavor or the packaging or chewing and swallowing. I mean, those things are important, but there's there's so much to it and um, and you sort of have to individualize, you know, what options you're gonna choose for different situations. So thanks so much for your time. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll see you back in Australia sometime soon. Very welcome. Yes, I hope to <laughs> I hope to I hope to get home at some point as well. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers when crossed. Someone will let you on a plane. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> thanks. All right, big thanks to Gemma there for her thoughts around, I guess, some of the, the DIY and commercial alternatives to gels and bars. It's great to have a few different suggestions that people could try uh, and a few sort of tips and, and tricks and even some, some websites or resources that you could access that have a, uh, a few recipes and, and bits and pieces of information as well. So thanks very much, Gemma. Um, Steph, do you want to summarise what we just talked about? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I think I'll keep this one pretty pretty quick as quick as I normally ramble. Um, so I think it's just in terms of I guess you don't need to you know rely on um, buying um, sports nutrition products necessarily for your um, events. You can very well make them yourself if you've got the time and if you you know want to and need to. It's just about, I guess, knowing kind of what the aims are for what you're targeting in terms of you during nutrition. And then once you know that, uh, then you kind of know then what sort of ingredients you want in that particular product for you. So, you know, if you're looking at gels as an example, you know, it's obviously usually the, the main ingredient that we're wanting or the main macronutrient that we're wanting typically is carbohydrate. Um, and so then the, the sort of the form of carbohydrate that can typically be in those are things like glucose, fructose, sucrose and maltodextrin. Then if you're deciding to, to then make a gel, uh, then it's about using some of those ingredients and then changing around with the, with the flavours um, and the um, texture or consistency to help with that. We, we spoke about maltodextrin um, a fair bit and I know, Alan, you and I do like using that and that's because it's, um, it's like a carbohydrate polymer. It doesn't um, take, you know, there's no huge um, taste to it so it's nice and neutral um, but it's a good sneaky way of getting in carbohydrate and we particularly like it sometimes particularly in the long distance events where you do find that you're just getting over the sweet stuff. Um, getting the maltodextrin in um, can be really good and then you can add your own extra flavor to it so if you do want a little bit of sweetness just add a bit of sweetness if you want savory add some savory and it's generally um, tolerated 
um, by by majority of people pretty well. So yeah, and it's easy to get. You know, you can um, get it from some health food stores or um, you know some um, online running companies. It's pretty easy to get, and it doesn't have to be expensive. Gemma t- uh, talked with us as well on some really good um, different options for for solid um, foods, and she even said, you know, the same thing. Like, don't feel like you need to rely on um, you know, buying really expensive sports nutrition products. Um, you can just, you know, go to the supermarket and you can often use just the common supermarket items that you see there. So, you know, there's there's lollies that you can use there. There's waffles that you can use there. There's like little pikelets and stuff like that that you can use. Um, the, the, you know, what we see is really common as well, Alan, is sometimes the baby food. Um, uh, the you know if you're doing the ultras the um, the self-sufficient the beef jerkies and all of that sort of thing um, so it's about yeah like taking those things and then practicing it um, that was another key thing you know make sure you you do practice with it um, and then I think the other key thing is um, you know just being aware of like um some things may be better tolerated um, in certain sports than others. You know, like, yeah, we're more likely to experience symptoms when we're running versus on the bike and those types of things. Um, some gels can be bloody frustrating to, to try and open. So, um, you know, if you're going to make your own product, um, think about then how you're going to pack that. Um, are you going to put it in like a little soft flask? If you're making the mashed potato, how creative are you going to get in terms of like um, I used to put it in like a Ziploc bag, cut it, cut a sort of a hole through, um, make a nozzle through it. If you're making rice cakes, um, yeah, trying to get the right easy packaging to use so you don't get potentially all alfoil into your um, um, rice cakes. Um, so, yeah, just having a, a proper think about how you're going to make whatever you're using portable and and make sure it's kind of yeah it's easy to get to get out um and then the other thing just to be really mindful of as well um it's just the hygiene so food safety too um so whatever you're making uh make sure that it's um you know gonna be uh, able to uh, withstand the conditions that it's going to be in um, and for how long it's going to be there um, and whether you need to consider, you know, at checkpoints, you know, um, often then you might be able to have the refrigeration and those types of things. So just be mindful of that and how long products um, do sit because um, the last thing you want is to get a, you know, um, a upset gut from eating something that you've um, cooked yourself. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, thanks for that, Steph. Uh, And just a reminder, we've got two more episodes coming up this year, Um, so going right up until just before Christmas, and then we will take a break for a few weeks. So our next episode, Steph, is going to be episode 28A. So what's our topic for our last two episodes of the year? Yeah, this is a good one, Alan. I think we've timed this um, unexpectedly really well um, <laughs> with um, <laughs> the, the um, well, hopefully soon the hotter days coming up. So how can my nutrition help to keep me cool? Um, and we are l- very lucky to have um, Dr. Megan Ross, um, or Meg Ross, who's done a lot of research at the Australian Institute of Sport 
um, alongside um, working with Louise Burke. Meg isn't a um, sports dietitian as such. Um, she's a um, exercise physiologist. Al. Yep. Yep. Um, and um, yeah, has been working in this area for so so long. And she yeah did a PhD um, in this. Um, uh, area leading up to you know working things out for the Beijing um, Olympics and yeah just it has a wealth of um, of experience not only in research but then really applying it because that's what she needed to do in um, in what in her research so and um, what we're talking about with her are things that she's helped to to athletes be able to implement and in the Olympic Games um, so it's pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, great to, to hear from Meg. And, and some of you might be thinking, well, hang on a minute, haven't you done that topic before? Well, we sort of talked with Professor Ollie Jay from the University of Sydney um, right back in episode, I'm going to say four, I think four, yeah, we thought four it was and four. five. It was five, I'm yep. pretty sure, um, yep. about, you know, preparing for a race in the hot weather. Um, we also spoke to Jess Stenson, marathon runner. Um, but we focused a lot there on heat acclimation, and the evaporation of sweat so i guess a strategy that's very helpful in hot but dry conditions so we deliberately decided to change that around this time and look at particularly humid conditions and some of the strategies that are typically used there so these are things like pre-cooling with ice slushies uh, hyperhydration with glycerol or, or sodium loading um, and some of the perceptive stuff which we touched on very briefly with ollie um, but we'll look into in a lot more detail in these two episodes. So it'll be good to, to cover that off for, for people who are considering these kind of strategies, whether it's um, running, cycling or triathlon. I've, I've seen it used in all three sports um, at Olympic level and, and below for, for those sort of hot weather events, which, you know, depending on your particular sport, may be you know, sort of a once in a blue moon event for a lot of people. Yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be... Um super helpful for for many people nice and practical tips so yep yep absolutely okay so just a final reminder if you have a particular question that you'd like answered on the podcast you can feel free to get in contact with us on social media at the long lunch on facebook instagram or twitter um but other than that steph i think it's time for us to go and leave everyone in peace and we'll chat to you all next week awesome thanks guys see ya